following a brief hiatus from last week where we enjoyed an amazing baptismal service. Um, we will be returning and finishing the series that we've called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And we've picked out some of those things that Jesus said in the New Testament that either challenge our brains or challenge our hearts, or I think in this case perhaps challenge the culture that we live in. And so we've just had the famous passage read for us from Matthew chapter 16, culminating in perhaps the most well-known of the hard sayings of Jesus. From verse 24, pop that up behind me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, this account is repeated in three of the four Gospels. <clears throat> and there really isn't a lot of difference between them. They all follow a similar sort of pattern, if you like, where Jesus is firstly revealed as the Messiah. Uh, then he says he has to be rejected and must die. Peter won't have it. Jesus has a go at him. And then he says to all of them, you must deny yourself, take up your cross if you want to follow me. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this text. Um, we certainly won't get to cover all of it. Um, but hopefully we might get somewhere close to what Jesus really means when he says this. <clears throat> I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase self-denial. Um, I get images of like medieval monks sort of living in seclusion, almost trying to punish themselves into God's good books. Um, but I think by and large, self-denial carries quite negative connotations, doesn't it? Uh, perhaps moral superiority, you know, I'm more self-controlled than you, so I'm better and stronger than you. Uh, maybe even a little bit sadistic and cruel, perhaps. Um, but certainly now, in today's world, to exercise self-denial is considered a bit unnatural, isn't it? Perhaps even a little bit damaging. Um, you know, we're actively encouraged to pursue our desires because that's considered healthy. And we live in a time where the gospel of self-love and being true to yourself is sacrosanct. Now, I, I don't totally disagree with those, those ideas, but they do at least seem to stand completely opposed to what Jesus is saying here. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, people today will tell you that self-love and pursuing your inner desires is the key to experiencing your life in a more fulfilling way. But somehow, almost paradoxically, as verse 26 hints at, Jesus also is concerned with us finding life. Somehow, the road to it comes through self-denial. How on earth does that work? Well, hopefully, we'll hopefully find out as we go on. Um, in Christian church sort of circles as well, um, this verse gets thrown around quite a lot, doesn't it? <clears throat> if you've been in and around church for any length of time, you might have heard this verse dropped into conversation every now and again. And in my experience, I don't know about you, um, we tend to use this verse in one of two ways. See if these sound familiar to you. Um, the first way is as an encouragement to give stuff up. Um, we read self-denial and we go, well... I should probably be wary of anything that I enjoy too much. Um, and the key to following Jesus is to be mistrustful of any desires that I have, because if they come from inside me, then they must be bad. Um, and the, the second way 
uh, is as a method to try and sort of cope with mild inconvenience. You know, I keep getting stuck in traffic on the way to work. Maybe that's my cross to bear. Um, yeah, it's not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be too controversial. In, you know, I'm not claiming to have a great amount of knowledge on this subject, but I want to suggest that both those interpretations are wrong. <laughs> or at least they don't, they don't tell the whole story. They're a little bit reductive, you might say. Um, so even though our culture tells us that pursuing our desires is important, I think we can all still agree that abstinence from certain things is kind of necessary, you know, otherwise there won't be any point in having any laws. And there may be things that you need to give up to safeguard your relationship with God. I'm just not totally convinced that when Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross, it's not as simplistic as maybe I should spend a bit less time on the golf course or on the PlayStation perhaps, you know. That might be part of it for you, I don't know, but I think the weight of meaning behind what Jesus is saying is heavier than just not doing stuff. You know, we're talking matters of the soul, as verse 26 points out. This is about our whole being, our whole way of thinking and feeling. Can we walk this road in mind, body, and spirit? <clears throat> and similarly, when we go through setbacks and difficulties, we can't totally label everything that goes wrong for us as a cross to bear. Um, John MacArthur, an American preacher, says that Christians don't have a monopoly on suffering. Um, and whilst we might go through hardship in our lives, let's be honest, some of them are of our own making. So what is Jesus talking about then? If that's what he's not talking about, what is he going on about? It was fairly well known at this time that part of the humiliation of being sentenced to a crucifixion by the Romans was being made to carry a cross to it, as Jesus would later find out. So on the surface of it, Jesus is saying that following him can involve mortal danger. And there's plenty of Christians throughout the world for whom this verse is all too real. But in reality, martyrdom, although it's a possibility for us, it's not something that we're really faced with on a day-to-day -day basis. So what can we as, as Western Christians then take from this verse? And I just want to briefly suggest three things that carrying a cross might mean for us. <clears throat> so number one, cross-carrying means a call to follow rather than to merely obey. Now there's nothing that sticks in your craw, I would suggest, quite like someone who tells you to do something that you know they wouldn't be willing to do themselves. <clears throat> Particularly when people in authority doing, do it, it's irritating, isn't it? You know, we've all been there, haven't we, in our jobs or with our families. You get given something difficult or boring to do by your boss or your parents, and you think, you'd never in a million years do this. And if you did, or someone made you, you'd throw a hissy fit. But you seem very comfortable with the idea of me doing it. Or even worse, when you have to do something difficult and someone in authority tries to jump on your back and take a bit of slice of the credit for it. Um, politicians are particularly adept at this, aren't they? Um, a lot of you will know Holly, my wife, um, and where she works at the old Quarry Adventure Playground in Nottingley. It's a great place. They do fantastic work on a really deprived estate, but she'd be the first to tell you that it's not, it's not an easy job. Now, there is a certain politician who will remain nameless, who has been known to turn up at Holly's work from time to time, stick on an apron for a strategic photo opportunity, and then disappear very quickly afterwards. 
You know, and you look at that and you can't help but think, is this a type of work that you actually want to be a part of? Or do you just want to appear to be part of it to enhance your image? Now, the flip side of this is, of course, leaders and authority figures that are willing to roll up their sleeves and muck in. They're far more likely to garner your respect, aren't they? And you're automatically more willing to follow them. Uh, Admiral Lord Nelson was a great example of this. You know, if you know me, you know I'm going to try and crowbar a history example in somewhere. Um, yeah, he famously signaled his troops at the Battle of Trafalgar that England expects every man to do his duty. And when he said this, it didn't come from a man sat at the back, sort of in safety, ordering other, other men to their deaths. He was right up the front, in the thick of it, aboard the HMS Victory, which I think is a bit of a presumptive name for a battleship. Um, but, you know, he was right up the front and he had cannonballs flying past his face. And he famously refused, he died uh, after refusing to change his admiral's uniform, which made him much easier for the enemy to spot. And now he sits on top of a 100-foot statue in the center of London, being defecated on by pigeons. Um, and... appears to have frozen, I do apologize. Yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that leaders who call others to follow their example rather to simply obey their command are more memorable. Now, in the NIV translation, verse 24, we read, whoever wants to be my disciple, but in pretty much every other English translation of this verse, you will read, whoever would come after me, or whoever desires to follow me, or words to that effect. <clears throat> this isn't Jesus sitting on a throne, looking down at humanity, saying, if you want to earn my approval, you better be willing to deny yourself. Now, he isn't unwilling to share in the struggles of the people that he's asking to follow him. He's not sat on the sidelines, pointing to the road of self-denial, and saying, get yourself down there, I'll cheer you on, you know, and I'll give you the hollow support of a politician. You know, he's saying this road of self-denial and cross-carrying is a road that I am going to walk every inch of. And whether you're coming or not won't make a difference to me. I'm going anyway. There's a verse in Luke 9.51 that says Jesus set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He was utterly determined to deny himself, carry his cross, and die on it for the sake of those people willing to follow him. And this is partly why... Peter gets the sharp end of Jesus' tongue in verse 23. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, don't think that just because this is Jesus, he has some kind of superhuman ability to deny himself and carry his cross. You know, it was hard for him. You know, he asked if it was possible to be spared his fate in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here again through Peter, the devil is trying to tempt him out of his purpose, trying to dangle the possibility that Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross if he doesn't want to. You're a stumbling block to me, he says. I think what he's really saying is, don't tempt me. Now, if there was anyone who had the right to refuse this path, if there was anyone who had the ability to subjugate and silence the people who would reject him, if there was anyone who didn't owe humanity anything, it was him. Maybe these thoughts entered his mind when Peter said, don't go to the cross. I don't know, maybe. 
But paradoxically, this is what he had to do to give us the life that he promises in verse 25. He chose to lay down his life to show us the way, to be our brother in arms, to be our example, but above all, to be our salvation. If Jesus doesn't walk the road of self-denial, then humanity has no hope. This is the Jesus we follow, not a dictator, not a distant authority figure, but one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Secondly, cross-carrying means submitting to the knowledge and wisdom of God. <clears throat> Just scroll it back to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Peter, as is often the case in the Gospels, is the first one to, to speak his mind and put his foot in it. Um, but I don't think we can be too hard on Peter in this instance. Um, I'm fairly certain most of the other disciples would have shared Peter's thoughts. Um, I think I have a theory that some of the more timid disciples might have been quite thankful for Peter at times. Because he wasn't afraid to stick his head above the parapet and voice his opinion, he got the flack. Kind of reminds me of um, if you've been in a situation like this in, in your jobs or you know, college perhaps or at school, where whoever's in charge is given an idea of something they want to happen and all of you to a man think it's ridiculous. But none of you dare say, you all sort of look at each other, giving each other the eye, and then one of you pipes up and you sort of all go, oh, thank goodness for that. Now I don't have to stick my neck on the block because that guy did it. Um, I mean, Peter's a bit like that. Um, so he's just identified Jesus as the Messiah. And almost in the same breath, Jesus says, oh, by the way, really, religious leaders are going to hate me now, and I've got to be murdered. Verse 21. So Peter says to Jesus in private, this will never happen to you. Never. What are you doing? What are you thinking? This is ridiculous. And I'm sure the rest of them were thinking it as well. Um, but it would have just seemed completely senseless and illogical to the disciples. You know, it's like a record scratch, if you like. You know, there's been speculation before this about who Jesus really was, and then there's hints in some of the other Gospels. Uh, and we've built to this like amazing crescendo where Jesus finally comes out of it and says, I am the Messiah, only for him to instantly whip the rug out from under their feet. It's the ultimate anticlimax can't have made any sense to them. You know, everything they've ever understood from the Old Testament prophets, I'm sure, would have led them to think the religious leaders are going to bow before this guy. You know, he's going to sit atop a very shiny throne and he's taken us with him to share in some of that glory. And he has, after all, just told Peter that he's going to be instrumental in founding the church. It must have been so far removed from how they pictured the coming of the Messiah. And you've only got to take a cursory glance through some of the gospel accounts to see that Jesus kind of goes out of his way to subvert our expectations of what a Messiah should look like. You know, born into poverty, made a refugee, made homeless, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of a kingly white steed. This wasn't how anyone expected the Messiah to turn up. So when Peter rebukes Jesus and refuses to accept what he's saying, he can kind of understand it. Would we have reacted any differently? 
if we'd have had their level of understanding. We don't really know why they didn't seem to cotton on to the fact that Jesus says he'll be raised to life. Uh, maybe they didn't really believe him. Uh, maybe they thought, well, even if he is, you know, what's in it for us? You know, we don't really know. Um, but either way, we know that for Peter, at least, this wasn't how they saw things playing out. So this is when the back end of verse 23 comes quite important to understanding this thread, I think. You know, Peter is not thinking about the concerns of God but merely human concerns. And I think for us, this is pivotal in understanding part of this self-denial that's expected of us. You know, Looking at everything that's been said so far and the sort of direction of travel in the text, I think it's safe to say that part of your car carrying your cross involves submitting our concerns and our human understanding to the logic and knowledge of God. Now, we've all felt like Peter, haven't we, to some degree. You know, when things haven't happened the way we wanted or expected, now, I'm not talking about the stuck-in-traffic kind of hardship I mentioned earlier. I'm talking real hardship and difficulty. And we look at God and we say, how can this be the plan? <laughs> Why on earth would you want things to pan out this way? And part of denying yourself, I think, is to be able to say to God in those moments, I'm going to take my concerns, my understanding, and I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to trust you. Now, that requires some pretty tough self-denial, granted. Um, and as hard as it is, if God is who he says he is, and if he loves me and cares for me the way he says he does, I have to submit to his control and to his purposes, no matter what happens. And I have to trust him, even if I can't always make sense of it. Now, biblical cynics will say that trusting God over our own intuition and reason is just a flimsy coping mechanism for weak-minded people. To be truly liberated, you must totally trust yourself and your own mind above what anyone else might tell you. And if you feel like that, I would say to you that what the human mind has been able to achieve since these words were written um, is amazing, unfathomable. I'm not knocking it for a second, but as, as advanced as we have become, the same questions that haunt us today are the ones that haunted humanity when it first began. Why are we here? Where do I find hope? Why do I feel the need to fight against my own mortality? What is it all for? As far as human understanding has taken us, these aren't questions you're going to find the answer to in the bottom of a test tube or with an equation. But yet we still have this burning desire to have them answered. So what do we do? Deny yourself, Jesus says. Follow me instead, and eventually it will make sense. And submit to the one whose thoughts are higher than ours and whose ways are not our ways, as Isaiah tells us. <clears throat> Lastly, number three, carrying your cross means investing for eternity. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, there's another, there's another aspect to Peter's sort of incredulity, I think, at what Jesus has said. He's not just surprised or concerned for Jesus' welfare. 
when he tries to talk him out of going to the cross. I think there's there's a selfish motive just bubbling up under the surface, I think. And let's not forget that <coughs> Jesus has just said to Peter in verse 18, you're Peter, on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades won't overcome it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You know, how is Peter reacting to this news? Have a think about it. You know, his head must be, I don't know, several sizes too big, perhaps. So when Jesus says to him, I'm going to suffer and die, alarm bells must start going off in his head, you know, thinking, hang on a minute, you've just promised me the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I can't get my hands on them if you've been crucified or captured. You know, again, it's not totally clear why he doesn't click onto the resurrection part, but he can't have fully understood it because otherwise he wouldn't have tried to talk Jesus out of it. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Peter understood Jesus' promise to him in kind of worldly terms. Now, maybe he thought he was going to get some kind of political power, you know, or maybe he'd get to provide, preside over some kind of prestigious temple, maybe. We don't know. But it must have been something along those lines, because otherwise Jesus wouldn't have said, you're only thinking about human concerns. You know, you're only thinking about yourself, basically. See, this, this is an important moment for the disciples. This is like a crossroads moment for them, if you like. You know, Jesus is challenging their motivation for following him. You know, he's saying, if you're following me for some kind of material gain, you may as well turn around now. So that's not where this road is leading. You know, he's trying to be absolutely clear so he's not leaving them under any illusion. If you read Mark's account of this story, he says he calls the crowd together, everybody that was there. So you can kind of imagine Jesus sort of getting up on a, on a soapbox or something and saying to them, right, listen, let's get this cleared up right now. If you're following me because you think there's glory and riches in it for, it, for you, you're wasting your time. So why bother, you might ask? Why bother denying yourself and taking up a cross? Well, let's be clear. It's not that Jesus had nothing to offer. It's just that he wants to lift their gaze towards a greater incentive. Whoever would save his life will lose it, Jesus says. Roughly translated into Yorkshire, I think that means you can't take it with you. It's a well-worn phrase, isn't it? But it still stands up. You can go through life accumulating and looking after yourself, but ultimately we all end up the same. This idea is repeated in one form or another all over the Bible. You could call it one of the main themes of the gospel. Think of the parable of the wise and foolish builder, the parable of the rich fool, the entire book of Ecclesiastes, where a man who has everything compares his life to chasing after the wind, all in one way or another. The retelling of these verses, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Invest in something better, Jesus says. Make an eternal investment by choosing to carry a cross and follow him. See, Jesus is trying to make us understand that our lives are fragile and temporal. Regardless of who we are or what we do, we have the opportunity to use them well. To follow his example, to be selfless, to be generous, to preach the word, to risk hardship for him, to be sacrificial in pursuit of something greater. We can only do this because he went ahead of us first. Our incentive to carry a cross should be with eternity in mind. 
Jesus' incentive to carry his cross was us. See, although that Jesus wants us to follow him, his cross was ultimately unique to him. Despite his calling, we can't pay for our own salvation by carrying a cross. Only he could pay for it. But because he paid for it, when he calls you to carry your cross, it is meaningful, it is worthwhile. But it wasn't just his death that paved the way for us. His resurrection was equally important. If he wasn't raised to life, he'd be nothing more than a good leader and a good example. He'd be no different to Nelson. Now, there'd be no point submitting to God's wisdom in difficult times. And we might as well go after all the earthly treasure that we can find. As the Apostle Paul points out clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. The road of the cross-bearer is one filled with hope, but only because he went where we couldn't. He chose to ignore the temptation and carry his cross because he loved us. Greater love has no one than this, he says to his disciples in John 15, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command.